The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Breaking a Baseball News Podcast here on the Pitcherless Podcast Network, I am Tim Jackson flying solo this week, and we've got some good stuff to dig into, mostly some things that have just been on my mind recently, things that might come up at Baseball Prospectus as you hear it, so you might be able to read about it as well in uh, both different and further detail. Uh, mostly, this week's big idea is how bad can a fastball be? And when we ask that kind of question... We're talking about four-seamers because, really, four-seamers are the pitch that have become so prevalent in recent years. They are, you know, of course, at the center of any velocity bumps we're talking about, whether that is in a given player's repertoire year to year, or whether that's historically over the last decade or so as pitches become harder and harder and harder every season, pretty much without failing. Uh, Ultimately, the four-seamer has been the biggest component of the North-South game, the biggest component of anything, right? It sets up so much when it comes down to pitching. Uh, The North-South game, of course, being that pitchers changing eye levels of hitters when it comes to trying to get the most beneficial thing for them, which is a strikeout or some weak contact because they throw the four-seamer up high and they can then throw and complement it with a breaking ball down low that naturally uh, divert from from, from the fastball itself that naturally causes a separation uh, to the hitter that changes their eye level in such a way that it makes their horizontal barrel uh, of their bat go vertical. And you think about that, and suddenly you know you, you have a, a lesser space with the bat to make contact that is quality and squared up, and that leads to things like those exit velocities uh, and uh, those launch angles that get berated so much on broadcasts, right? So when you think of it that way, when you think of hitters uh, ultimately tweaking their game to it, they're going to look for the pitch that they can drive no matter what. What you have to do is try to get them off of their toes, really get them on their heels. And that's what this north-south game does so much and so well when it comes to pitchers with their fastballs leading the way and their curveball slide or whatever it is breaking off of that. But it's 2021 and we all know the situation by now when it comes down to how baseball is both being, uh, I guess, adjudicated and uh, played and manipulated to a certain extent. We know that MLB had a really ham-fisted crackdown when it comes to uh, sticky stuff, goop, 
that pitchers use throughout the course of the game. And we know that some of these things were straight up absurd, like spider tech adding hundreds of RPM to a given pitch, which adds, you know, tons of perceived rise to a hitter that they swing under when, it, when the ball comes in, when it comes to those fastballs and, and more drop when it comes to the breaking balls. Uh, but we know that while that was probably an unsavory part of the game and had been going on forever and that ultimately weeding it out might be a beneficial thing, even though, again, the way MLB went about it was ham fisted. I don't know that there really is another way that we could describe that that would also be as descriptive, that would be as useful in hearing and processing what it is uh, because offense has gone up. And that is what MLB wanted, but ultimately we know that it also was the result of this ham-fisted process, that it was also the result of something that didn't really think of unintended consequences, which is always something that happens when it comes down to the way MLB operates, right? They don't understand the unintended consequences that could come. It's not even necessarily that they need to understand them, but they don't consider that certain things could happen, certain injuries that haven't happened yet or reveal themselves yet exclusively, although we've got some inklings when it comes to Tyler Glass now even a hunch maybe when it comes to somebody like Jacob deGrom and the way he grips the ball. Um, although it appears he's so elite, it doesn't really matter if he was using the sticky stuff. He wasn't necessarily, but um, you know, nonetheless, now he's on the shelf with elbow inflammation and uh, we're getting into more and more sides, but really what we want to think of is just that MLB did this thing mid season without really priming their teams uh, of the product that they suddenly were going to influence. And it all detracted really from, we know, at this rate, especially as a listener to this podcast, that it was also the result of probably not wanting to focus on the changes that they made to the baseball that had negative consequences that they didn't anticipate. Like, oh yeah, there wouldn't be as many homers, but there would be way more outs and things like, you know, you're not getting the singles that are dropping in for hits uh, as, as often or the extra base hits that go over outfielders' heads because they all play so deep now that nothing really beats anybody deep. You don't, you hardly ever see anybody in the outfield get beat by a ball going over their head. It's all just a matter of the strategy, a matter of understanding uh, that the the way the ball moves off the bat, no matter what it's made of or what sticky sticky substance was made to throw it. Uh, Defenses, they they play deeper, especially at the corners and in the outfield. Uh, And we know that that is really putting a big emphasis on. Uh, bloop singles, you know, dropping singles in between that that outfield and infield where, okay, fine, we'll give you a single, but that's all you're getting. You're not getting the extra bases. Uh, so we know that when the league organizes these kinds of things, it doesn't really necessarily have the kindest and most loving process behind it. And while those things might sound weird, if you're not kind and loving to your own product, you have a weird relationship with your own product. Um, and that brings us back to fastballs and how if you know sticky stuff isn't on pitchers hands and they're not throwing with it anymore then ultimately those fastballs won't have as much uh, perceived rise right they won't they won't hang up there as much they won't have batters swinging underneath and we know at this rate that as soon as the crackdown was announced pitchers ultimately did start to wean themselves off of sticky substances when throwing the ball and that offense went up accordingly and that if they left one hanging, they really got crushed. And lo and behold, more pitches were left hanging more often. So offense was going up, especially after June 23rd. Uh, all of this, by the way, is backed up by some of the great people at BP and I'm sure elsewhere. But of course, my experience, uh, like anybody's, is where my touchstone is. And that's my touchstone is BP. 
where uh, Rob Arthur has done some great work on things like how defenses are positioning themselves on what's happening with the ball uh, and how it, you know, the high fastball ultimately that really is the driving force behind that North South game that we've talked about over these few minutes. Uh, You know, it was neutered. And there are there are things to look at for this. There are ways to look at how the offense basically cascaded down negatively or rather cascaded up. Uh, you know, the, the effect of the pitch went down and then basically fell off a cliff June 23rd when things went into official effect. No more sticky substances or the automatic suspensions and boots all come out of the game, all that. So we are left with this question of how bad can a fastball be? Uh, and, you know, of course, we're getting here after building the context and reminding ourselves of what's going on, because how else would we do it? Uh, and we're really asking, is it a matter of how relevant fastballs still are? You know, one thing that pitchers do across the league is, by and large, no matter how prevalent breaking balls have become in recent years, and they are being thrown more often year over year over the last few years, probably five to seven years, I would guess uh, off the top of my head, I know it's at least the last five. And something that we could really track, given uh, we have that data now with StatCast and even pitch effects and pitch info. Uh, how bad can a fastball be? Because when pitchers are behind, they are throwing the fastball still 60% of the time. And often when they do that, they are ultimately leaving it in the zone lower more often. They want it to be competitive in the sense that they want weaker contact. That doesn't always happen, right? You can throw it really easily into a batter's happy zone at that point. You're not getting the whiff as frequently there because in part, you're not going for it. You're not set up for it. So if you're not set up for it, like in anything, how can you succeed at it? So we know fastballs are still being thrown a bunch. Uh, We know that they're still being thrown even more when batters uh, are ahead and pitchers are behind and the pitchers want to get even or go ahead themselves. Uh, You know, is it also a matter of fastballs being uh, too tough non-fastballs that is being too tough to throw more you know is it a health thing when it comes to what a, a slider or or a curveball puts on an elbow in terms of stress is it a feel thing that can't always be there like it is maybe with a curveball or a changeup? even steve stone today this very day august 19th i uh, was talking about dylan tisa's curveball now i hadn't broken it out yet early in the game because maybe he didn't have the feel for it uh, and again, to use that phrase, lo and behold, so he's got into some trouble. And I think he did walk in and run that game. So feel is very much a thing that we can't necessarily quantify, just is or is not. And uh, that's something that could really keep pitchers from being able to throw breaking balls more often to maybe nullify, nullify how critical a good fastball is. Uh, and when we're considering what it means to have a bad fastball, and of course, four seamers, because cutters, two seamers, they move differently. They do different things. So we're looking at four seamers here. And the one thing to consider is the league average rates on some of uh, these these pitches. So for a four seamer, the whiff rate is 22.4%. So how often a batter swings and misses once they do swing at a four seam fastball. And the ground ball rate on a four seam fastball is 34.7%. So if a guy's four-seamer is only flirting with those two two numbers, again, with whiffs 22.4% or grounders 34.7%, if a guy's four-seamer is only flirting with those numbers or is even worse and below it, ultimately it's not meeting those thresholds or surpassing them. So what they're doing is creating too many difficult outs to make because we know the strikeout is really tough, right? There's, 
it's not even that you have to defend it. It happens. Defenders don't have to do anything. And then a grounder is much more approachable than anything hit in the air, unless it's maybe an infield fly ball. Uh, So ultimately, if guys aren't meeting the thresholds on whiffs or grounders when it comes to a four-seamer, it means that they're really probably not in a great position to set up their arsenal with their breaking stuff to get guys to chase it, uh, to get guys to go after it, to make weak contact, to roll over it, you know, and pull it over uh, to their to their pull side and make it an easy ground out. Now, one thing to consider when it comes to whether a team or a player in a given environment is dealing with this fastball is what teams do about it, how teams might organize themselves. If you pull this information, you're going to find that teams like the Rockies have guys atop the leaderboards who throw a fastball and a curveball and a slider, but the fastball is relatively ineffective. It does not meet that 22.4% uh, threshold for whiffs or that 34.7% threshold for grounders. So the Rockies, having guys at the top of their rotation who ultimately do not get those kinds of results with their four-seam fastballs is really interesting because we know that the air at Coors Field influences some things. We know that breaking balls don't break as much there. So to use four-seamers that don't gather whiff rates that are above average or uh, even ground ball rates that are above average is really an interesting choice developmentally. And we've talked about how weird the Rockies are as an organization in terms of their player development or lack thereof. And ultimately, maybe that's part of the issue is that they're focusing on fastballs in a way that doesn't really cater them to the environment. Because although Herman Marquez does not get whiffs with his fastball, he still has a pretty elite ground ball rate with his four-seamer. And it gets up there around 60%. Gomber, meanwhile, does not. He doesn't get whiffs on it. He's got like half the swinging strike rate of league average. He's got a ground ball rate that is just under average. And it's, it's interesting for as effective as he's been, you know, maybe there's still some volatility there. And I think we've seen that even as he's been healthy on and off this year, we've seen that volatility in his game where early on, a lot of people wrote him off. And then he, he had this great streak where maybe things were ironed out. He had that feel that allowed him to throw the breaking balls more successfully, but without the fastball, the volatility is kind of left there. We see it in other organizations, uh, namely maybe even Atlanta with Max Freed, uh, Bryce Wilson, Kyle Wright, Waskar Inoa, uh, Kyle Muller, you know, guys of all over the, the scale in terms of uh, known, how known they are, whether they had prospect pedigree, all of that. Obviously, Freed is a legitimate major league piece. Uh, Waskar Inoa seems to be that kind of guy, but None of them garner whiffs with their fastball on a regular basis that is at least at an average or, you know, really above or plus rate. And that might explain why Atlanta's had such a tough time developing pitchers the last few years. I mean, even really only recently have we understood how a fastball moves. So even when you have the velocity of a Kyle right in the mid to high 90s, the plane it's coming in on isn't really a plane that allows that spin to play up, that allows that velocity to play up because it's coming in flat. It doesn't look like it's got that rising motion to hitters that they're able to barrel it up, to to line it up, because that's what major league hitters do, right? You hear that cliche on broadcast, which always makes me laugh, that like, oh, this guy's really a fastball hitter. 
Well, no kidding. He's a major league hitter. Of course he can hit a fastball. Even if, you know, he's not the best major league hitter, he's in a position to really load one up. So we've got, let's say, Wilson and Wright and to another extent, Muller. With subpar fastballs when it comes to whiffs, when it comes to the swinging strike. That would really explain some of the gap that they have not been able to traverse. They have not been able to bridge when it comes to developing these rotation pieces, which is why, like, you know, guys like Wilson and Wright haven't been able to stay clean to what is really a rotation spot that's been up for grads, which is how guys like uh, Waskar Noah and Kyle Muller come in in the, in the events of injury and really light the world on fire. When it comes to Inoa, he's got like a dynamic, dynamic breaking ball. His slider garners so, so many strikes. That really does make it kind of special. Even without his fastball ultimately playing up, we know that his breaker is so good in the event uh, that it gets, you know, 19.3% swinging strikes, that it, that it gets uh, an according amount of whiffs because, again, swinging strikes, uh, just how many guys at time, uh, how many times the swing and miss happens versus how many times uh, the swing and miss happens when batters swing. The difference between whiff and strike percent and swinging strike percent is so subtle, but also so critical. Uh, we know that it's really, really good. We know that it, it does seem to ultimately allow the fastball to survive at a 6.1% swinging strike rate because it does get almost 50% ground balls. It's pretty much 48% on that pitch. That's well above the average. So it's getting, it's putting in some work for him. It's allowing his stuff to play up in the most optimal way possible. Kyle Muller in a similar boat, although his stuff isn't as effective. And that's why he gets sent down after, you know, performing admirably, all things considered, in eight starts and nine total appearances when Inoa was on the shelf for being kind of a ding-dong and breaking his hand when he was angry and punching something on the bench. Uh, and in terms of Wilson and, and Wright, I'm not sure what we have in them. I'm not sure Atlanta knows what they have in them. Or maybe they know, and it's like it is kind of this shuttle go-between piece that they're hoping falls into a high leverage set. But when we think of that, we could also think of it in terms of relievers often having dynamic stuff that plays up better in their given role because of velocity, because they are on plane with their pitches in, in such a way that does optimize them. And of course, Max Fried, we know his breakers are great, that when they're on, basically, he, he can be so, so tough to hit. But really something to consider is that the way certain orgs may or may not spot their, their players' fastballs and the way that those orgs may or may not be able to develop them by doing things like uh, changing how it comes out of the pitcher's hand, tweaking it ever so slightly so that axis, that plane does change and does make it more effective. We might know that these teams aren't quite there yet in terms of their player development. Again, not necessarily specious, but not necessarily by any means distinct in determining that those things are truths, just observations we can make over the last few years and things that we can share now because we have the data out there. You can go to a player's fan graphs page and look at the splits on their pitches and see what all these things do and really glean some critical, critical information when it comes to processing all this. Now, when it comes to approaching the fixes, for what you do with a bad fastball, right? A fastball that can't get whiffs, a fastball that doesn't make easy ground ball out. There are a couple of examples that really might show us the way to improving. So Cleveland, we know that they're renowned for pitcher development and getting guys out of nowhere, getting guys who are uh, both of high pedigree and, and lower or no pedigree and making something of them, making useful pieces of them. We know that when it came to like Corey Kluber, they let him lean into all his other offerings and, you know, his two seamers cutters, all his breaking balls, all that stuff. 
how the Astros have done that with Luis Garcia to great extent this year. His cutter has been so good. It's so good at garnering that weak contact, those whiffs, that the four-seamer doesn't matter as much because he still has numerous breaking balls to go after it uh, after that in the cutter, which really leads us to say that more pitches that a pitcher can offer means really more bullets in the chambers when it comes to how they, they kind of shoot when they're out there on the mound. Uh, and that's something that when you have so many pitches, right, it does kind of nullify needing any one of them to be spectacular at any given point. When you have four or five pitches and you're missing one or two of them on a given night, you're not sunk, right? You're not totally up a certain creek without a paddle. Uh, and then the other approach could be that teams might have a guy lean into a breaking ball that really they want to hone or they know is great. And they say, you know what, let's make this play up as much as humanly possible. We saw that with Shane Bieber and his slider over the last couple of years. And now that thing just became a lean again, another really solid example from the Cleveland organization. We know that the Tampa Bay Rays did this with Charlie Morton. When they signed him the first year, he went up his, his curveball went up to record high usage for his own personal career. And they say, you know what, this is your best pitch. Just let them eat, go throw it. Uh, and again, in Noah with the slider, he's also really good when it comes down to that. He's really good at, you know, flipping that thing across the plate because he throws that uh, a grand total of 46.8% of the time. Uh, and that means that he's basically fastball slider, but the slider's so good, it plays up. We know that Morton did that too. Like the, that curveball, Charlie Morton throws is just nasty. He can use it uh, backdoor, frontdoor, whiffs, called strikes, all that. So when you have an elite breaking ball, it really does, again, take the weight off of a weaker four-seamer. And that's really what the solutions are looking to do. Whether you have more pitches or one really elite offering, you are taking weight off the lesser, uh, weaker link. And that means that it doesn't, it doesn't break as easily, right? Ultimately, when it comes to a lack of a good four-seamer in this context, when we have four-seamers that don't garner whiffs, don't garner easy ground ball outs, we might be left with a five and dive type, right? And that's that's really a volatile profile because it can be five great innings, it can be five plus great innings. But man, when it goes wrong, like those guys are done and they are done early and you're into the bullpen and that can be taxing if that's 20, 40, 60% of your rotation. It might also mean that, again, like as a bullpen arm, it doesn't, necessarily mean this stuff's going to play up right away if you convert these guys with bad fastballs to relievers because they might not need to turn the lineup over but they might not have the fastball that can sneak by guys and they need at least that much they need to sneak by if they're not going to be able to blow by them blatantly right uh so it puts pressure on the other offerings it puts pressure on pitchability and having a consistent feel on other pitches, on having enough pitches that, again, missing one or two in a start doesn't sink a guy at any given point, but it leaves them open to be vulnerable, uh, to be volatile, uh, which can be really useful, but ultimately you, you get in a rut and it's it's a really nasty thing to watch game in, game out. You can't be a two or maybe even three pitch pitcher because like Luis Garcia, he, he has those other options in the in the chamber and he can take advantage of them. And when we say that you have that pitch, remember that's a pitcher being able to throw at eight to 10% of the time, enough to the point where a batter has to be able to keep it in the for, forefront of their mind. So they're not duped by it in the middle of an at bat, right? If you're throwing it less than that, it's really kind of an afterthought. It might be a show me pitch, but if you're throwing it that much, that 10%, 
it does take a lot of stress off of the other pitches. Now, for as much as we have humored ourselves here on what it means to have a bad fastball, the extent to which you can get away with a bad fastball, but really the closer to the league average you are in whiffs with it, the better off you are overall, uh, which you know keeps you away from being that super volatile five and dive type. As much as we've humored ourselves on that topic and as much as we might have to consider moving forward and keep thinking about fastballs and four-seamers. is this week in baseball where we've got all sorts of news, up and down, injuries, comebacks, all that. One note uh, is that Freddie Peralta is to the IL for the Brewers with uh, inflammation in his throwing shoulder. And inflammation, of course, is not actually the problem. It's what's underneath the inflammation because the body uses inflammation as a way to like say, hey, hold up. We need to ease up and let this thing underneath heal. So hopefully it's just a matter of throwing a ton of really quality innings for the Brewers so far and needing a break and that he can come back healthy because the Brewers are so funky and quirky that Freddie Peralta exploding onto the scene like Corbin Burns, like Brendan Woodruff before him, too perfect and so good and so fun to follow. So hopefully he's back soon. Uh, Jesse Winker is to the IL and probably will stay beyond the minimum for the Reds per David Bell. And that's kind of a gut punch, both probably in the prospects of their playoff uh, hopes that are dwindling with each day, just in the sense that they have so much to catch up to, especially if we regard that NL West going hog wild this year with three teams that are just unbelievable. Uh, And that's, you know, that's the Giants, that's the Dodgers, that's the Padres. Despite all their injuries, all those teams are really just so, so good. Yadier Molina is seeking a one-year deal worth at least $9 million to re-up with those St. Louis Cardinals. And that's a really fair deal to consider as you hear a possible jingle there in the background. That's Mr. Knox, of course, the most uh, fuzziest-faced pup in the world uh, hanging out in the office with me. So uh, again, as he looks for belly rubs, the Cardinals are going to look to strike a pact with Yadier Molina because he's such a cornerstone. Of course, a Hall of Fame-type player that be really weird to see him show up in a different uniform and 9 million, probably not that crazy for the kind of production that he's been able to do. He's really, again, tweaking his game year to year, offensively, defensively to get as much out of himself for the team as possible. So I wouldn't be surprised to see that happen. Uh, We have ultimately MLB proposing a $180 million first luxury threshold tax, first luxury threshold tax. Uh, in the sense that like, okay, there's multiple levels and you go, you spend more and more, you're going to get penalized uh, while also having a hundred million dollar floor. So my notes in this dear listener is literally bullet point that says, LOL, because the deal with this is that it would just create an artificial cap uh, or crap Freudian slip. That's utterly perfect. That's lower than we already have with the collective bargaining tax or the, the CBT, the, the, the threshold that teams are meeting they're not going over that $206, $207 million number because then they're penalized a certain percentage on each dollar spent after that. The problem is that if you have multiple thresholds, you're going to incentivize teams to spend less because they don't want any sort of penalty because they're all run by billionaires who are uh, ultimately greedy, right? They want the money. They want both the toy of a professional sports franchise that only so many people have, only a few dozen people really have. And they still want to stay rich. They did not get rich by spending money in this capacity, right? Even though they can afford it and they cry poor and that's a false claim because they never want to show you their books. That's ultimately what's happening is that there are going to be spending less. You're going to incentivize more teams to spend less. You might have teams spending less than $100 million now reaching the floor 
So you shuffle where the money is. It might go to lesser players, but you're ultimately still limiting the earning capacity of players, especially those who have uh, reached the point of free agency, especially superstars who might still set the market, but still might only do it for select few teams like the Dodgers and like the Yankees if they ever choose to get off that luxury tax threshold again. Because once you go buy it, you might as well blow by it. So we're going to get notes on how it's better for players in the press. We're going to get uh, fluff pieces from national writers. I'm certain that ultimately, you know, that's really something you want to be able to follow. And, oh, yeah, this is the this is a good idea. This is a competitive balance idea. It is not. None of these teams can't afford signing quality players that make them competitive more and more year in, year out. So another luxury tax threshold is absolutely ridiculous, especially if it's lower, even if it comes with a salary floor because it moves money around. It does not increase money going to players who frankly have earned it after sitting through the minors, working through it, getting paid garbage and having a chance to finally play at the highest level. Uh, some other notes, the Yankees activated are all this Chapman and Anthony Rizzo critical pieces for them. And what's really turning it, turning into a hot AL East race as the Red Sox flounder, as the Rays pull ahead of the Yankees and as that wild card race heats up, between an AOS team and an NL East or an AL East team at this point, you have guys uh, on on the Astros, on the Athletics, now really on the Yankees, on the Red Sox. Those are the teams that are going to be fighting out for those wild cards moving forward, most likely. Uh, George Springer's back to the IL with a knee sprain, just a bummer in the sense that he has been on IL like four times this year, and uh, we hope that he's healthy because he's been so good when he's been back, and he's so critical for a team like the Jays. Still going for it with a lot of hungry young hitters. So uh, in some sense, you know, as if they can be more competitive, why not? Chris Bassett is going to undergo facial surgery after being hit by a comebacker the other day. Uh, hopefully, maybe this helps people consider helmets for any defender that wants them. It always feels kind of absurd and gory and uh, weirdly, uh, you know, weirdly just observational to see that these guys are so unprotected and, and the pitchers are so close, right? They throw so hard guys hit so hard at this point, really dangerous stuff. So best wishes to Chris Bassett and hopefully best wishes for a new thought that comes through to MLB teams where guys start wearing some more protective gear around their faces. Uh, and ultimately we also have that the giants are looking to discuss an extension with Buster Posey, what that might mean for Joey Bart. Who knows? He might be a trade piece. Maybe they say, you know what? Catchers take forever to develop by and large anyway. Posey's generational Hall of Fame type material. We talked about him, TC and I, months ago or weeks ago. Uh, who knows? Because time is a flat circle. But that he's having the best year of his career in some time. And it might be in large part because he got the time off by being able to opt out last year. And that, that brings about like all, all sorts of things. We, you know, the, the routines we put people through uh, all levels of workers everywhere, really about routine and grind and all of that. Uh, but something to consider moving forward. The Astros also released Francis Martes. He was kind of on the same plane as Christian Javier coming up. It was kind of like, which one's going to play the role for the club, right? Because there's only so many roles to go around. But something to consider when it comes to the release of Francis Martes is that the Astros are just a club that has to let talented guys go more so than other teams because their threshold for talent is just so much higher than so many other teams. They've let outfielders, for example, go who have really turned in quality seasons or at least look like potential quality pieces to Oscar Hernandez, Brian De La Cruz. And coincidentally, those guys uh, are reportedly great makeup guys. So make of that what you will for a club like the Astros. 
uh, and what they might uh, prioritize in their org as we've talked about that with pitches and all that. But that'll about do it for us this week. So happy that you hung out with me flying solo. TC and I will be back at it next week as Knox does a big old shake there for such a silly little baby uh, that I'm sure you heard come through. But you can find me at Tim Jackson says on Twitter. You can find me at Baseball Prospectus doing the depth charts pieces every week, uh, going through the teams and how they are ultimately working through it in that regard, who's getting what playing time, why and when and where. Uh, and uh, you can find us at the pod at BreakingPodPL at gmail.com. If you want to email us, you can find us at BreakingPodPL on Twitter. And hopefully you can find us around the Discord too and ultimately rate us five stars, leave a nice comment. Again, we value so much that you choose to spend some time with us. We love it. And uh, the comments, the ratings, they mean so much to us too. So uh, I hope that you guys got something good out of this. I hope we'll get a little more interaction next week when TC and I are back together. We hope you have the best week ever. And we'll see you next time, everybody. 